don't know about you, but that, uh, that's exciting to watch. I wanted to show that. That's um, a clip from the NBC series, AD Continues. And, um, you know, it's not perfectly accurate. But the reason I wanted to show it was because it's almost impossible for you and I to visualize what took place in this story. Have you ever seen anything like that happen before? I hadn't either. And so I love, this is one of the things I love about movies. They put the things that we can't experience or that we don't know, they put them in a visual sense that we can sort of get some application of what that might have been like. Incredible. Incredible. Well, thanks for being with us. We have started a new series in the book of Acts that I'm really excited about. This is the second message in that book. Uh, Last week, we sort of did an overview and we went through uh, chapter one, all the things that happened in chapter one. Uh, Just to give you a little bit of a recap, we know that the book of Acts was written by the apostle Luke. He also wrote the gospel according to Luke. And that those two books really were to go together, right? They were kind of to be connected Uh, And so we'll be jumping back and forth from Luke and and Acts quite a bit. Um, We know that he wrote these books for a friend named Theophilus. Um, And this is just, I love the fact that Luke is so detail-oriented that he is, uh, has given us so much detail in the history of this story. We left off um, in chapter 1 with about 120 followers, right? They had been together. Jesus had told them to go and to wait on the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit. Um, But in this chapter 2, we see so much. We see amazing miracles like what you just saw. We see incredibly uh, anointed and spirit-led preaching. And we see most, maybe most importantly, we get to see the heart of God. Do you know what the heart of God is? It's that people come to know Jesus. That's the heart of God. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that nobody has to perish, but whoever believes in him can trust him, can know him, not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the heart of God. And we see that so much in chapter two as we get into it. In chapter one, we see that the disciples were supposed to wait. In in chapter one, in chapter two, we see the Holy Spirit comes, right? In chapter 1, they were equipped. In chapter 2, now they're empowered. In chapter 1, they were held back. In chapter 2, they're sent out. In chapter 1, the Savior ascends. But in chapter 2, the Spirit descends. In chapter 1, Jesus makes a promise. Right? And in chapter 2, he keeps his promise. In a massive way. In a massive way. want us to... uh, read together this portion of scripture that we have today to study on. That is uh, the beginning section of Acts 2. I'm going to read from the uh, ESV version of the Bible. You should have it up here behind me if you want to read along. This is Acts 2, 1 through 13. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing uh, them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, uh, Phrygia, Phrygia and uh, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. That's a long list. But we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked, saying they're filled with new wine. What a story. I told you we were in for some amazing uh, storylines, right? And, and this is a big one. Now listen, all of us have moments in our lives where we have, uh, I guess you could call them, I don't know, standing stones or major roadblocks, road markers, I should say, things that happen. You were born, maybe you graduated high school or college, you had your first child, you got married, you got your first job. There's just different things that happen in each of our lives that we can look back over our lives. We can go, oh, that, those were some big points, right? We see the same thing in the story of God. There's major points. As we look over the story of God, we see these major markers along the road that we can map what God is doing. And listen, church, today we read about one. Today in this study is the moment that the church is born. This is the moment where we, and we're affected by this, right? We are a church. It started right here in this text. It started right here with the Holy Spirit of God empowering his people to do the mission of God. And the mission of God is what? To make him known, right? To make him known. The redemptive plan of God begins to unfold uh, in the Garden of Eden, right? We see in Genesis 3, this is the fall of man. This is where Adam and Eve really messed it up. Here's a big marker there. Fall of man is a big deal, right? We see even through the Mosaic Law, we see a reflection or a foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to do for us through the sacrifices, right? Through the atonement. We see God is laying out some symbols to help us to understand that Jesus is going to come and he's going to take care of all of that. And in this beautiful story, and any good author would put in foreshadowing to help you get the deeper meaning of, of the message that he's trying to show. And we serve the greatest author, right? So we, we have the Garden of Eden, the fall of man. We have... Uh, the Mosaic law, we have the climax of the story of Jesus on the cross where the Holy Son of God gives his life for a needy world. We see him rise again victoriously on the third day, right? Victorious over sin and death and the grave. And we see him walk among his followers 
and as we talked about last week, giving many proofs that he was alive. And Jesus says something. He says, I'm going to make a promise that the Spirit is going to come. But we, we notice that the Spirit can't come unless Jesus ascends. Let's look at John chapter 7, verse 37 through 39. It says this. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not glorified. So now we see Jesus ascends to heaven and we see him keep his promise in Acts 2 on Pentecost. All right, so what, what is Pentecost? Some of you hear the word Pentecost and you go, oh boy, here we go. Pentecost, that's those people that do some strange things. And granted, there is some new uh, application to the word Pentecost than what it originally meant. The word Pentecost literally means 50th. Who's been married 50 years or, or more? Yeah. So you could, you could go around and impress people saying, it's my Pentecost anniversary this year. It's your 50th. That's what it means. But it didn't mean year. It meant day. And what it was was the 50th day from the Passover. So everybody remember the Passover, right? The Jews are in, in uh, Egypt. And Moses has come to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And they've gone through the plagues. And then the last one he says, listen. He begs again, let my people go. And Pharaoh says no. And so Moses tells uh, the Jews, he says, place the blood of, of an unblemished lamb over your door, right? And the death angel is going to come and he's going to pass over. And if he sees that blood, again, foreshadowing of Jesus and his sacrifice over our lives. He says, if he sees that blood over the door, then he'll pass by. He'll pass over you. But if it's not on the door, he'll take your firstborn child. And we see in the story that Pharaoh's firstborn is taken, right? And it's through that pain that Pharaoh says, go. And the Jewish people leave. Fifty days later, the nation of Israel is standing at the base of Mount Sinai. Remember Mount Sinai? This is the place where uh, God makes a covenant with his people. It's also the place where God gives instruction. He gives the law to Moses to give to his people. So Pentecost is a celebration of that day and of that time, of those things, okay? Every year, Jews from around the world, and it says uh, men from every nation under heaven. Really what that's saying is Jewish men from every nation where Jews lived, okay? And it gives a long list of different languages that are spoken. But Jews came back from wherever they lived, and they came back to Jerusalem to celebrate this story of God's covenant and provision of his law to his people. Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost. That's what Pentecost is. Uh, you can see more of it in Exodus 19. Uh, this was a celebration. This was a, an exuberant, joyful time. I mean, this, you can imagine the streets filled with people, filled with people. But my question is, Lord, why Pentecost? Like, why not the week before or the week after or some other time? And the interesting thing, there's so much depth in this story Everybody, listen. God chose Pentecost like he chose other moments of significance. 
Like I said, like a good author, he helps us get a depth of meaning into why he's doing what he's doing. So let's take a look at some other significant road markers, okay? Here's one. Jesus riding into Jerusalem at Passover. It's like the author is saying, hey, you remember you celebrate Passover? Remember the story, Israelites, where the death angel came over and if there was blood over the door, then I would pass over? Jesus comes and rides into town and God's trying to say, he's trying to give us a clue. He's saying, listen, here is your Passover lamb, unblemished, perfect, sinless. Here's the Passover lamb. God parallels the price Jesus pays and that moment of him giving Jesus to us with the, with the celebration of Passover. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, says, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Paul's trying to help the, the people see this was what was happening. God's trying to give us a depth of meaning here. Well, what's another one? Well, the second feast uh, could be seen, in the, the second feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would have happened on a Sunday, okay? And it was a feast, in many of these feasts, they were feast of first fruits. In other words, something that the people would bring and sacrifice would be the first fruits of their crops or whatever, okay? The interesting parallel and connection here is that the Apostle Paul also tells us something about first fruits. It's not about Jesus' death, instead it's about Jesus' resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. And he says this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Paul's not just, you know, by chance, picking a phrase. Paul is helping us see a little bit of this storyline that Jesus comes and dies at Passover. He's raised again, right? And he is the first of the fruits of those who have gone to sleep, who've died in Christ, will be raised again. He's the first of many. Hallelujah, right? That's good news. Here's the third, the Feast of Pentecost. Feast of Pentecost. We'll see next week uh, Peter, and we, we know this story, so I can kind of, we can talk a little bit about it before we get there. Obviously, we've read it and know it, but we know, we see in this next section of Scripture that we'll study next week, Peter gets up in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he preaches this amazing message to these people who've come because of this great noise that they've heard in the Holy Spirit's coming. He preaches this message, and by the, the grace of God and the power of the Spirit, 3,000 people come to know the Lord that day and join the church and says they were added to the church. I think that's significant. Not just, they weren't just saved, but they, they came to a belonging with a group of people. I think that's significant. This is what's interesting. The Feast of Pentecost is also a feast of first fruits. And so we see that these 3,000 people are the first fruits of the mission of God. What's the mission of God? To see that people come to know Jesus, right? So we're seeing at Pentecost the first fruits of the mission of God. He sends the Holy Spirit in a very dramatic and wonderful way, and the first fruits of his mission are that 3,000 people come to know him. It's like God saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get you started in a great way, but this is the point. This is what we're doing. I think Pentecost was 
I think it was the perfect time. And I'll tell you why. If God has a mission, and his mission is to send the message of Jesus to people who know him, need him, and need to know him, if that's his mission, how much better to do it at a time where there are Jews from all over the world that are coming in. They come in, they see this miracle, they hear this miracle of people speaking in their own language. They know that in this moment, this could only be God. Only God could do this. And then Peter, we see next week, he stands up and he breaks their hearts because he says, you crucified him. He proves that Jesus was the Messiah and then he says, you crucified him. And 3,000 people come to know him. What a perfect time for the people who live around the world to hear this message, for their hearts and their lives to be changed, and then to do what? Go. God has a mission, church. And that mission is to see that people come to know Jesus. And what a perfect time to do it. And what a dramatic and wonderful way than what we've seen and what we've read Their hearts are changed. 3,000 are added to the church, and God sends them back out. Let's look at the uh, first few verses of Acts 2 together. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together. That's talking about this 120. So our our visual depiction only shows the disciples. Think, Think a bigger group, 120, right? They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now, I I don't know if this was an actual wind. It says it was a sound like a mighty wind. But have you ever stood in in winds that were uh, tornado weather? Have you ever done that? I don't know why, but I kind of like it. It's something wrong with me. But when the tornado's in the area, you know, we've got the kids in our little closet thing, makeshift thing. The kids are, they love it, by the way, which is something wrong with them. But they... They love being in the closet, and we've got the pillows, and we're all padded and ready to go for whatever life's going to bring us. And I like to kind of, okay, I'll be right back, and I like to sneak outside and just get the feel of, of the weather and the wind. So I don't know if it was that kind of a feeling. I don't know if the wind was blowing in, but we know that there was a sound, a great sound. And that sound was not only heard inside the house, it was heard all around the house. Because the multitude, it says the great multitude of these people came rushing to the house because of what they heard. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now listen, this is important too. The posture for a Jew to pray would be to stand or to kneel, not to sit. And I think this this is specific, and, and Luke is telling us this little detail because he's trying to show us they were surprised. In the video, it showed them ready, didn't it? It showed them passionate and praying. <laughs> Here he, no. The scripture says that they were seated. They were seated. And that means they were caught off guard. Suddenly, the Bible says, the Holy Spirit came. Suddenly, the sound came in. They were taken by surprise. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. All right, now we see, I want to break this down just a little bit here with us. We see three phenomenon that take place in this story. Three things, at least, that we don't see every day. 
The first is the sound of a mighty rushing, rushing wind. Again, don't know if it's a wind, if it's just a sound, but it's the sound or the wind or whatever fills the house uh, where they're sitting. The second phenomenon is tongues of fire. And that's the reason I played this is because what is that? How does that look like? And who knows if that's what even lo- it looked like, but at least it gives us some type of visual to try and imagine what took place. Tongues of fire. Here's what's cool. The Bible says that when the tongues divided, they went and rested. Did they go and rest on the disciples? No. The Bible's specific. Luke is making a point with every detail. He says the tongues were divided and rested on every believer. That's significant, church, and this is the reason. When you ask Jesus to come into your heart and save you and change you, the Holy Spirit baptizes you with himself. He comes into your life, every believer, every believer. And I love that that, that Luke is so specific in saying that flame went to every single believer, man and woman, everyone. You know, as I studied this this week, this may be one of my favorite things. There's a couple of things I just love about this study this week, and this is one. I begin to wonder about what is it about fire? And I, I, <laughs> we realize that fire is, is how God represents himself to his people when he's dealing relationally with people. When God comes and deals with his people in scripture relationally, he represents himself in the form of fire. Let me give you some examples. It's a special relationship. The covenant with Abram, Genesis 15, remember? He makes a covenant with Abraham, with Abram, and there's a sacrifice on the ground. That's another interesting, wonderful study. But God is represented as fire and smoke, and it says that the fire and the smoke moves its way through the sacrifice. God represents himself to Abram as fire and smoke. Here's the next one, Moses. He's at a bush, and what's, what's the bush doing? It's burning. We're seeing the relational character of the author, of our great God, showing himself to his people through fire. What about the people of Sinai? They're at the base of the mountain, and there's a pillar of fire coming down on top of the mountain, right? Right? What about the, the Israelites in the wilderness and God leads them by a pillar of fire? Now listen, those are interesting aspects, but here's the cool thing about for me and you. Because of this moment in Acts 2 where those, those, that fire was divided to every believer, you and I carry the warmth of the presence of God everywhere we go. Do you see that? The relational aspect of God, he's shown himself in all these places, including this moment in Acts. And he says, you know what? I'm going to do something with you relationally. I'm going to give you my spirit. Each of you who know me and follow me, you're going to have my spirit. And you can go and be witnesses. Remember Acts 1.8? You can go now. You can do this work. You carry me with you. I love that. The third phenomenon that we see in this text is that they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. 
and they begin to speak in other tongues and other languages. Now, again, I think those of us who have grown up Baptist, we get into these type of scriptures or these type of conversations and we start to go, what's this going to be about, huh? What's this, huh? This is not a gibberish that's going on here. We see in this context, in this, in this scripture, these are known languages. And it's a phenomenon. We see, right, we, see the, we hear the sound. We see the fire distributed to every believer. And then these people that are standing around going, what's going on in this house? They're hearing their languages. And if you look in your text, look at all that list. I love Luke and his detail. He writes down every culture and every possible language that is being spoken in that moment. I love that. Each language represented is a miracle. Each language represented is a miracle. And the fact that there are people outside the house that understand what's going on, it's beautiful. No language, listen, no language or culture has precedent over another. I want, listen, I'm going to say that a couple of times because I want you to hear it. There's a reason the Holy Spirit of God comes to the church in this way. He's trying to make a point. No language or culture has the market on the mission of God. How beautiful that God in his wisdom at the same time, simultaneously, these followers of Jesus begin to speak in these different languages and God's saying, no language and no culture has precedent over another. My message is for everyone. My message is for everyone. I love the fact that, you know, Christianity is the most culturally diverse religion there is. If you look into it and you break it down, you'll see it's the most culturally diverse religion there is. If you're a Muslim and maybe you live in America, there are aspects of your religion that are contextual to the Middle East. You're going to bring that over here. That's going to be maybe how you look or how you dress. There's pieces of it that are going to connect, connect. Same if you're a Buddhist. But listen, if you're a Christian, you can be in Africa and, and God fills your culture with the presence and power and purpose of the mission of Jesus. And you can be in Thailand and you can be everywhere and it fills your culture. It's the most racially diverse religion in the world, no question about it. And listen, church, this is, this is something for us. That's why our church needs to be as racially and culturally diverse as we can possibly be. That's why our church needs to be as racially and culturally unique as we can be. We, why? Because the Spirit has said it's important, right? In that moment, he's given us a message. He didn't give it to just those speaking Greek or those speaking Hebrew or all these languages. At the same time, it's important. The Spirit of God wants it this way that we're a diverse body of people. I started looking. What's another time where God did a miracle that had to do with language? 
Tower of Babel. Genesis 11. And let me just remind you of the story. The people had moved from the east. They were all together and they had one language. And they were smart. And they were building, they wanted to build cities and they were building a tower. But the problem was they were also very, very proud. They were very proud of themselves and they wanted to make their name great, it says in scripture. And they were very inwardly focused. They didn't want to go anywhere. Let's just focus on us, make our names great, and let's build this tower. Well, God comes down to visit, and he says, I see what they're doing. They think life is all about them. They want to make their name great. They think they don't need me. And so what does God do? He confuses them where they can't communicate with each other. And in doing so, their project of the tower just stalls out, right? Because you can't say, hand me a hammer. Nobody gets it. You can't communicate with each other. They're confused. And also God disperses them around the world. Now, do you think it's significant that here at Pentecost and here in Acts 2 that God does this miracle of languages? He's put a curse at the Tower of Babel on these people. And that's the point where we get the division of races and cultures and warring factions and all these things. Do you think it's significant that at this moment in Acts 2, God says, you know what? I'm reversing the curse. I'm reversing the curse. And so instead of confusing you, I'm going to have all these languages. And you know what? This time you're going to understand. And yes, A name will be made great, but it won't be yours. It'll be mine. And yes, I'm going to send you out again, but this time it'll be for my glory, not yours. And then Tim Keller reminds me, that's what the church is about. As we give our lives to each other, as we walk in faith and we learn of what God wants to teach us in this, it's about reversing The curse. We walk with life in community. We talk honestly about things in our families, in our own struggles. And God wants to reverse the curse of sin in our families. He wants to turn it on its head for his glory and our good. There's something significant about the curse at the Tower of Babel and yet the blessing of this miracle in these languages. God is doing something that we can't even hardly dig into. It's so big. Mm. I want to close this morning. And I want to, I want to just kind of show you, hold up for you, this story. We talked about the people at the, the base of Mount Sinai. What happened there? Well, here's this nation standing around. God wants to connect relationally to them, a pillar of fire. And they, yet they can't stand to hear God's voice. They can't, they can't handle it. And so they say, Moses, will you go for us? Go and, and speak for God. Be a mediator for us. Would you do that? And Moses goes up and he mediates for the people. And God lovingly gives them the Ten Commandments, right? And then the people sin and Moses goes up. And he intercedes for the people. 
We don't have Moses anymore. We have Jesus. And again, in a foreshadowing of the author, he's shown us we don't need Moses. We have Jesus. And instead of the word of the law going forth, we have the word of the gospel of Jesus going forth in the mission of God through the power of God. Isn't that good? On Sinai, God saw, God gives the law. And at Pentecost, God gives a gospel mission. At Sinai, the fire came down on the mountain. But at Pentecost, the fire comes to every believer. Next piece of scripture and we're done. Very last verse in our text this morning. It says they, they hear them telling in their own tongues the mighty works of God. And let me just mention that. The first time the gospel goes forth, it goes forth in multiple languages. <laughs> just, that's so cool to me. Verse 12, and all were amazed and perplexed. Everyone was amazed and perplexed, but they handled it differently, didn't they? Saying one to another, what does this mean? But others mocked, saying, they're filled with new wine. Now, did you know that every time God shows up and starts doing something, there's some people who are going to say, what does this mean? What is this about? And they truly want to learn. They truly want to know the significance. They truly want to experience God working and moving in their lives, in their church, in their homes, in their families, in their communities. And then there's another group of people that would just go, not pay attention to the miracles. Not pay attention to the movement, the, the clear movement of God. Ah, oh, they're just drunk. They're just crazy. Listen, if a group of people <laughs> can ignore fire from heaven and the sound of a mighty rushing wind and multiple languages being spoken by a simple group of people, if they can ignore that and say they're just drunk, how many of us can watch what God's doing See him moving, see him making changes, see people coming to know him as Savior, seeing community cared for, and, and then us just go, well, I don't know. That's just, I don't know. God, would you give us hearts and eyes to see you at work? It's okay to wonder what you're doing. What does this mean? That's a good thing. Listen, I want to be a church where questions are okay. Let's ask questions, because I believe that Jesus is the truth and the way. He's our hope. And our answer will always be him. It's okay to ask, where are we going? What does this mean? But it's not okay to dismiss the work of God. It's not okay to not take serious the work and the miracle of God. I would just encourage us this morning that we be drawn to him that would be drawn to what he's doing and not find some way to dismiss it. Even in our individual lives, listen, God may be speaking to your heart about something. God may be moving you in some way to do something, to give something, to care for someone, to speak to someone, to go on a mission. I don't know what God's calling you to do. 
Oh, how easy it is to say, uh, I must have been crazy in that moment, or the person that spoke to me that, they must have been drunk, or that, that. It's so easy to find excuses and dismiss the things that we don't want to accept, the things that we don't understand. Instead, let's ask questions. Let's press in. Lord, what does this mean? What are you doing? What are you doing? Listen, this morning, if you don't have that fire of the relational presence of Jesus living in you, the Holy Spirit's presence in you, because you haven't trusted him to be your Savior, would you do that today? What are you waiting on? Yeah, this is a service. We, we have a service. But it's imperfect, just like our lives. We put on, we speak, we do some music. It's imperfect. We don't do it perfectly. We're not a perfect people. What are you waiting on? Come join us. Do you need a family to be a part of? Listen, I was talking to the group this morning. The Lord just has laid it on my heart that we be a church that not invite people to a service. Instead, we invite them to a family. I don't want to be about a service. I want to be about a family. Do you have a family? A place where you can be you. Where God's working and moving and people are challenging you and holding you accountable. A place where you can confess sin and work, work out and walk out the mission of God in your life and in your family. If you don't, would you come be a part of our church? Or if we can just pray for you. Maybe you're walking through something you don't know what to do. And you just want to use this space or the space where you're sitting to just take a moment as we sing and just say, Lord, I, I just want to pause and I want to seek your presence and I want to seek your answers. That's okay too. If we can be a service to you, if we can care for you, we're here for you. Jacob's going to come and we're going to sing. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord, thank you for truth of your word. Thank you for the joy of understanding and seeing just a little bit of the mystery and the wonder of God. Lord, as we worship, I was reminded even this morning as we worshiped that we need to stand in awe of you. That we need to step back and enjoy the wonder of your presence and the glory of who you are. But Lord, may we not forget the other piece of this puzzle is that we're not here for us. As much as I love to stand in your presence and worship, Lord, you've also called me to go. As much as I love to be around your people and enjoy community and fellowship, you've called me to sacrifice and to love the unlovable and to befriend my enemy and to be Jesus to everyone I meet. Lord, may the fire of your relational presence be represented in me and may the warmth of who you are draw people to you. That's our prayer, God, for all of us, that you do a work here so much bigger than us we can't explain it. All we can do is say, God, what does this mean? Use us for your glory.
and help us to be about your mission to make you known. In Jesus' name, amen.